I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, and we are going back to the 1950s for a look at the home of the future. That's right. For well over a year now, you have been hearing incredible conversations, interviews, and panels with amazing creative talent as part of our Wellness and Design Thought Leadership series presented by Thermosol. It has been and continues to be an absolute joy working with the entire team at Thermosol from the top down. This multi-generational family business has been producing the gold standard in steam generators, saunas, steam showers, and steam shower accessories for decades. Thermosol is the original steam shower with technology that is state-of-the-art, made and manufactured in the United States. The company's history with steam showers started by David Altman in 1958. Murray Altman acquired Thermosol's steam bath division in 1989, and the company is now led by Mitch Altman from their world-class production facility in Round Rock, Texas. The most successful designers and architects are using steam showers to maximize wellness, relaxation, and enjoyment for their clients. Thermosol is a staunch advocate for the design trade, and I am so proud to have them as a presenting partner of Convo by Design and the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series. If not familiar with the entire range of Thermosol products, please check out thermosol.com. I recently came across a video that was made in the 1950s by Westinghouse called The Total Electric Home. It is a fascinating film hosted by Betty Furness. She was an actress, consumer advocate, and special assistant in consumer affairs to the Johnson administration. Furness passed away in 1994, and she was really interesting. She turned a less-than-stellar acting career into a significant role as a consumer advocate and saleswoman. Furness hosted this remarkable film that was created by and featuring the products made by Westinghouse Electric. Westinghouse was founded in 1886 by George Westinghouse, who years earlier in 1865 patented the first rotary steam engine. In 1869, he patented an air braking system for use on the railroads. In 1888, Nikola Tesla patented the alternating current motor, and he goes to work for Westinghouse. In 1893, Westinghouse beats out Thomas Edison to win the contract to power the Chicago World's Fair. Then in 1914, Westinghouse acquires a Koopman Electric Stove Company to enter the home appliance market. So in the 50s, here they are, with this fully integrated electric home concept. Why didn't it take? The idea was genius. The reason it didn't work was due to many factors, not the least of which was the competition in the marketplace, and to perhaps an even larger extent, the proliferation of other power sources like natural gas. Natural gas has been used in the United States since before 1836, when the city of Philadelphia created the first municipal natural gas company. I don't want to go too deep here and turn this into a history lesson. Rather, let's look at this amazing piece of history as we look forward. Some of the basic ideas incorporated into this Westinghouse film, this total electric home, 
are relevant and even being introduced as of this recording. Just listen to Betty's introduction. I'm Betty Furness. In all my years with Westinghouse, I've covered some pretty interesting stories. But here is truly the most wonderful and exciting thing I've ever had the chance to talk about. It's the Westinghouse Total Electric Home. A home where electricity does everything. Heats, cools, illuminates, launders, preserves and prepares foods, entertains. It even lights a path to the front door with rayescent strip lighting. As visitors approach, more lights go on automatically to say a cheery welcome. Then when they arrive at the door, a television camera takes their picture to tell the hostess her guests have arrived. So the idea for the ring doorbell can be traced back to the 50s. Well, I don't know that rayescent lighting uh, ever took off. I have no idea what that is. It does sound pretty cool. And while the idea of seeing visitors is not novel to us now, imagine how this idea was received in the 50s. A great idea, right? But how about this? When you step inside the total electric home, you step into an entirely new concept in living, organized around electric centers, such as this entertainment center. Electric heating and cooling keep the home constantly and automatically at the most livable temperatures all year round, and keep it clean and healthful too. Sterile lamps kill airborne bacteria, while electrostatic filters remove pollen and dust. What? The idea for a home that is organized in zones is not new. But to envision a home that works together, as opposed to simply trying to seamlessly connect spaces, is, to this day, a revolutionary idea. Keep in mind that at this time, formal dining rooms, formal living rooms, and phone niches uh, were all must-haves. Now, I, I don't want you to think that this, is, that this whole idea could be plucked from then and planted now. There's this. The pride and joy of the man of the house is the weather control center. It appears that only men are interested in the weather. But wait. In the winter, the press of a button de-ices the front walk and driveway. In summer, an automatic control starts the lawn sprinklers when the ground gets thirsty. Integrated heating and watering. Not only novel, but simply amazing. Another beautiful and practical electrical center in the total electric home is the laundry and home planning center. With individual hampers, your clothes are sorted by type. The remarkable program computer selects and carries out the perfect washing and drying program for every fabric at the touch of a button. So I'm not sure about multiple hampers because, let's be honest, no kid I know is going to self-sort by material and or color. Speaking of kids. A sliding wall here in the children's quarters converts one large area into two separate bedrooms at night. During the day, the wall slides back and this becomes the child's education center. There's an electrically operated planetarium to encourage a study of the stars. So we're getting off topic a little bit, but it's okay because this total electric home is a concept house. And like many of the cars you go see at the auto show, it makes you wonder 
why there aren't more experimental spaces from which to truly explore the elements that go into living well. There's cost, of course, but I always thought that this was a perfect role for the design house, of which we're starting to see fewer organized by media and more created by developers. I wanted to use this opportunity to share some ideas you've heard by architects on previous episodes and a a few to come. We're talking about not just creating the home of the future, but the home for now. Homes with spaces designed to suit the way we live now and factor in changes that come next. This is architect Anthony Poon referencing the Wallace Neff bubble house in Pasadena and talking about modern for the masses. I think the, the true test is, is time. The example I always like to speak of is the Eiffel Tower. That when that was created and designed, it was, it was hated. Every politician, artist, architect, engineer, sculptor signed petitions throughout Paris, throughout France to have it torn down. You look at it now, of course, it is the beloved monument of the city of the entire country and, and one of the greatest aesthetic accomplishments in the world. Um, for Wallace Neff, perhaps the idea worked for a short time. It, it didn't last. I don't think it really was that practical. I don't think it converted into something that people would call home. Uh, but you look at it now and where we are with our housing crisis in most cities, perhaps those ideas can, can come back into play. So. What a what a happy transition, uh, modern for the masses. Yes, right. So, modern is something that you're obviously. It's an idea that you have embraced wholeheartedly. Yes, and the idea of creating it for the masses is simply a. That's not about the aesthetic or the ideas that go into it. That's simply a pricing structure. That's a that's a that's a monetary model. Um, how, do you, how do you jibe those two and what's the idea behind it? Well, the, the thesis, Modern for the Masses, uh, came out of a study of a lot of homes in LA. The, the ones that we see in the magazines, the glossy pictures, the websites, the homes that we love in the Hollywood Hills that sell for 10 million, 20 million dollars. Um, uh, and to clarify, modern to us isn't just the vocabulary of the architecture, it's a lifestyle. Um, it's, it's living in such a way that the indoors and the outdoors connect. The flexible open floor plan that allows people to entertain and, and be together as a family. It's the high ceilings, it's the walls of glass, it's, it's all sorts of cool ideas that have proven to make sense in this climate. Um, I, I'm always surprised when a, a client comes and says they want a Cape Cod house and they want it in Santa Monica. My response is, so you want a house with very little natural light, small rooms, low ceilings and no windows. And then they realize, uh, actually, it's not what they're looking for. Um, but to get back to Modern for the Masses, the, the challenge was, how can we create these beautiful modern homes for a fraction of the price, build them at a production level, a mass production level, and, and sell them? Um, we teamed with a developer named Andrew Adler, uh, who was able to find distressed properties in Palm Springs. We designed a few prototypes, very modern, uh, not at all what you see in track housing. Not the, the, the cheap Spanish-style homes with the fake trim and the fake tile roofs and the wedding cake decor. These are modern homes, very strictly modern. Lots of glass, uh, open space, very sleek. 
uh, we designed them. Uh, we proposed them for Palm Springs. Uh, as soon as we released the drawings, we had sold 14 of them within a week. Um, so we started building. Uh, to date, in the last four years, we've completed over 200 homes and they've all been built. They're all sold. Uh, they've been published extensively. We've been awarded over two dozen national and regional design awards from colleagues from the building industry, from developers and, and construction companies. Um, it's a program that has not been accomplished, as far as I know, by any other architecture studio other than mid-century modern, and we're talking going back 60 years. That was Anthony Poon talking about concepts. This is architect Stephen Francis Jones and his use of shipping containers to build a plentiful, relatively untapped resource for creation of dwellings. You know, I've been like thinking about how this, you know, how that using a shipping container would be able to be, uh, to be used as a building module. And um, I think that, uh, you know, there is a there's a conception that uh, that there, because it's a shipping container, it's cheap. <laughs> you know, but it's not very cheap at all. It's really like building a little car. <laughs> well, okay, but wait a minute. So, the the structure itself, like you can go to Wilmington, where they have literally thousands and mm -hmm. thousands of these piled on top of each other. You can get the, you can get the steel box. Yeah, but that's never. The issue is the no, steel box. That's the easy part. <laughs> you know, you can get one for twenty thousand dollars. You know, and so you know, you feel like you're halfway there. But you know, it's really, um, you know, working small is really difficult. You know, it's uh, you know, doing big restaurants. You know, five to seven thousand square foot restaurants. You have enough space where you can, you know, you can do stuff. When you start working small, you really can't, you know, you're really limited to uh, what you can do and your efficiency of space and uh, how it's utilized. And then add on top of that, having to, uh, to address, you know, issues like uh, ADA uh, compatibility, um, uh, making it uh, health department, you know, approved. Um, you know, there's so many rules and regulations that, that go in, then you don't really have much, you know, opportunity to, um, to you know, make any mistakes, you know, because it's all, so, everything's so small that, you know, you have to be as efficient as you can uh, with, the, with, the, with the thing. Now, one of the good things about, you know, using the shipping containers is, and in particular, the ones that we just finished at the um, uh, LA Football Club, is um, that you know we were able to uh, build it um, in a shop in Oakland, and um, while we were getting it permitted, um, you know because it's a state sort of it's state state approved um, certification, and then we literally you know got our permit. It, they drove it down on Saturday. We put it in place on uh, craned it in on Monday. And then we had our grand, we had the ribbon cutting ceremony on Wednesday. <laughs> See, that's great. <laughs> that is cool. Because you can, you can do your design build in a, in a totally controlled, a, controlled environment. environment. Yeah. It's the greatest thing. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is that, um, that, you know, and that's, that's the thing about the shipping containers. I think that um, they're not a cheap alternative, but they're, they've got the cool factor, you know. And, but, and then they're also mobile, you know, so you could... 
Uh, you know, I, I have been kind of conceiving the shipping containers as being like the bridge between brick and mortar and food trucks because, um, you know, I think that, uh, that that has been, you know, the, the, um, the brick and mortar to build the restaurant, you know, these days is just so expensive. I mean, I don't, I don't know how people can do it, you know. You are listening to the Home of the Future episode. We'll be right back with more in just a moment. I know you love talking about great partnerships the same way I do. Let me tell you about an incredible design partner who is working with us on the Convo by Design Remote Design House Tulsa project, Franz Wigner. A company created in 1899 in Attendorn, Germany. They started manufacturing brass beer taps. In 1921, the company expanded to Buenos Aires, manufacturing brass faucetry. The company launched in the U.S. in 1992, and Franz Wigner Premium Collection began in 2008. Franz Wigner crafts high-quality, premium faucets with the objective to create a design-oriented luxury product that exceeds the standards set by world-class designers and architects. Pretty heady stuff, and they do it. If you see a Franz Wigner faucet, it is stunning. You use Franz Wigner faucets, and they perform flawlessly. Product you can depend on after over 120 years designing a truly stunning faucet line. For more information and to check out the entire line of faucets, visit franzwigner.com. So I'm going to spell it for you, right? <laughs> F-R-A-N-Z-V-I-E-G-E-N-E-R.com. Thank you, Franz Wigner. From here, we can jump into a conversation with noted LA architect Dan Brun. Dan and I spoke at the West Edge Design Fair, and we were talking about some of his truly transformative projects. And it all started with his love for the Bauhaus style in which he grew up as a boy in Tel Aviv. Listen to Dan explain it. My background is actually from Tel Aviv. I was born there, raised there, uh, moved here in the mid-80s. I was fairly young. But, uh, you know, a lot of people, as you mentioned, talk about Bauhaus design, modernism. And in essence, I got to live through it. And for all of you who don't know, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it has the largest amount of Bauhaus buildings in the world. So my grandparents' house, my parents' house, was what people envision today, you know, a free open plan, sliding glass doors, terrazzo flooring, indoor-outdoor living, the same thing as everybody's kind of seeking today. I was, you know, going day by day doing that. And then I had a big shock coming to Los Angeles, and all of a sudden... You know, we're in this Spanish quote style, whatever, whatever house that's super dark and has no flow and no indoor outdoor relationship. And I was like, why does this have to exist? But you know what's interesting about that is why does it have to exist? Because this is LA and that's what we do, right? We make stuff up. You come out here to reinvent yourself. You make all of your mistakes. And then you learn from it. Isn't that really what LA architecture is all about? Absolutely. But actually, that's what gives you the opportunity to also, uh, and why I do practice here, is because you could do anything and anything that you want to do, and it's the door's open for you, right? So it's just, it's uh, completely kind of a bohemian, wild west world, you know, so it doesn't have the heritage. Well, it is, and I want to I touch on that. Last night, I was listening to NPR, and they were talking about uh, the dingbats. Do you all know what the dingbats are? Have you ever seen those apartments that have the soft first story? Yeah. The, the soft first story? Yeah. And they're carports. Mm-hmm. And then you, you live over. And every time there's an earthquake, those are like the first ones that fall down because they're structurally not 
not sound. They're not sound. But you know what? Someone came to L.A. in the 50s and 60s and said, hey, what a great... Look, we could put our cars underneath. And I mean, functionally, it works too, right? I mean, you take over the space, you put the car, and you live right above it. It makes sense. Yeah. So you got the dingbats, you got the the googies, and when when you talk modern architecture, it's hard not to talk about the googies if you've ever driven by a norms... Or you've seen those car washes? I used to go to uh, the Norms, and there used to be a ships on La Cienega Boulevard. That was where we'd go with my, with my dad. And it's still there. Yeah. And it's still there. Now, some of them survive. Some of them are being torn down. Um, there's a Chase Bank on Sunset. That's a, that's right. a, that's a googie, and that's going away. Um, but to your, to your point, kind of, that's... Why does that have to exist? I don't know. I mean, one of, you know... Uh, we're working right now on a project that's actually going to be net zero, right? And everybody's talking about uh, ecologically friendly homes and, and the future forward of how to be conscious about anything. And people ask, well, how are you getting there? And, you know, we live in this climate that's actually very feasible to get there. And that's why I question, why does this exist today? Like, why would somebody in their right mind uh, hire... A, not, a lot of people don't hire architects, but if they do hire somebody and then end up building this palazzo-style thing that makes no sense in today's climate yeah. and uh, environment when you could build something that actually does make sense and you could have better living style through it. Studio MLA's Ben Feldman and I sat down to talk about his work on the LA River Project. And this is further proof that the modern home and the modern solution to housing truly is a multifaceted patchwork of ideas, cobbled together to address many issues, changing times and conditions, not to mention technologies, both coming and going. That total electric home of the future wasn't just a one-off creation, but ideas put into practice every day. Listen to Ben explain it from his perspective. There's really, um, I think across the board, the sense of doing open space and trying to achieve its uh, highest maximum value to really have um, people begin to unpack what it means to be outside um, and that's a loaded (laughs) condition to itself so urbanistically um, and I think maybe we'll talk about this in a minute just the sense of LA to its core being a city of exhaustive scale and Um, low density and this horizontal city, city of villages. Um, And all of a sudden, you know, there's a certain cachet and a certain value that's now placed of being outside, being able to see people, to experience culture, um, social um, storefronts, um, all these things that, um, to me, people like Jane Jacobs that were arguing for it in New York and trying to fight off big infrastructural moves at the time of the 60s, Um, We're sort of seeing that now and being like, wait a second, Um, you know, there's more value, I think, in being in a tighter condition to to have my restaurant have a sidewalk cafe to to wanting to to move away from big retail centers and be sort of integrated in the street fold, you know, and sort of it's a little bit of social change, fashion, um, just the way we move about the city. And I think, you know, as landscape architects, we always value um, bringing nature in and and trying to create healthy places. So there's um, health in in many different folds. And part of it is just getting some exercise, walking, moving in different ways outside of a car. 
but also being shaded, um, having uh, the ability to you know handle these long hot summers that we now almost always face in the year and um, having that res- respite um, uh, is really important um, so uh, the case for our work is is also I'd say this uh, multifunctional but also performative type of landscape and I think the, the better contemporary landscape practices um, always push that as part of their agenda or kind of uh, mantra, a belief in the firm is that um, landscape architecture is more than aesthetic beauty. It's, it's really about empowering the system of urbanism and urban place to take away a lot of that 20th century engineering mentality and begin to uncouple things, um, whether that's storm drains at the surface or um, getting energy from the sun or just getting out you know into the public these are all simple things but it you need to kind of um, uncouple the sense of uh, the uh, virtues of, of a lot of the practice of, of where t- technology has brought us I think to the last few century or last few decades um, so the car culture itself is is really turning around, right? Quite a bit has been unpacked here. Adding another twist to the modern technologically advanced home is a brief chat with Stephen Ehrlich. When we met at Modernism Week in 2018, he was giving me a tour of an amazing project in the desert using some uncommon materials for the terrain to make the house both lighter on the footprint and to function better. Check this out. Well, that states the goal for it to look like it belongs here. And uh, the materials, there are really, other than glass, there are two principal materials. One is a rusted steel, and the other is cast-in-place concrete. And they're both very organic, and uh, they're not pristine. They're quite they they have their own a life unto themselves they're not perfect materials that, and that's part of what's beautiful is that that they that their colors and depth go in and out the steel is actually held off of the face of the building with more or less a 1 inch air gap so what happens is when in the hot season uh, the sun hits the steel and there are gaps between the steel and it dissipates so in a way it's a natural idea of of air conditioning. The same principle actually is hel- is happening up on the roof because we have a plane of photovoltaic cells that are lifted about a foot off the roof itself. So the sun is hitting those photovoltaic cells producing most of the electricity for the house and not being allowed to penetrate and make the house hotter. So there's kind of a high-tech uh, primal sustainable strategy going on here. Wrapping this up with architect Lorcan O'Herlihy and a brief chat about L.A. and Detroit from an urban living perspective. Concepts, materials, style, technology, and compatibility are all crucial to the modern livable home. And one also needs to understand municipal policy. Change it if you can, work around it when you must, and be creative, stitching projects in wherever possible. 
Nobody understands this like O'Herlihy. Most of our work primarily is in, uh, I've been in, uh, in Los Angeles for over 25 years. I have a practice here. Uh, and um, I'm very obsessed with the city and urban culture. So most of our work is in is addressing urban infill projects where Los Angeles is one of the most dense cities in Los Angeles, if not the most dense. So what we're working with is inserting infill projects like stitching into the city. Uh, the, there's a great difference between uh, Los Angeles. We're looking at a very different con uh, scenario in Detroit where there is this idea of... Uh, open plant, open fields, there's this great uh, challenge there in a sense that you have to design for the future because your the urban fabric uh, is very different. You have fields surrounding your projects. So primarily that's a critical issue. So it's an inverted, in a way, figure ground condition where Los Angeles is stitching into the city, Detroit, open fields. And what you build, you not only have to see design for that site, but also imagine the future which is an extraordinary issue because uh, uh, it really informs our project to say, okay, open up, make it more porous, have accessible edges, recognize that it's about the people, about walking and, and, and about the, the ecology of Detroit. There's such a fascination between the people there about what's going on in Detroit. They're very possessive. They want great work. So very, very extraordinary uh, process we're going through. It's interesting too, and it's, it's hard to say this without coming off negative. So I, I, try, I try my best not to do that, but being born and raised native Angelino, you know, when I was growing up in the San Fernando Valley, there were orange groves and there was all kinds of space and it depended on, you know, what, even over the, over the hill, even on this side of the hill, um, it, there were still spaces. And I've seen in a few short decades, the, the biggering and biggering of the city without a real strategic plan to that. And I'm, and I'm curious, why does, in your opinion, why does that happen? And the second part of that is, does a city like Detroit, with this revitalization that it's going through, have a chance to not make the same mistakes of Los Angeles? Yes, I believe so. Uh, there, the, the zoning that was done in Los Angeles is, is rather antiquated now. It was a top-down strategy. And as you know, the industrial area, zone industrial and zone residential, zone commercial, was a, was, a, was a strategy that does not work today. The nature of the culture that exists in Los Angeles is a shared culture. It's also people who want to uh, come back to urban areas and they want to be able to live in an apartment, walk down the street and go over to the supermarket. They want to be able to work there. So they want to live there, they want to work there. Previously, there was always about living in one place, get in your car and drive to your work. Very different condition, very different scenario. Um, that has is, uh, is been very hard to break that mold. So there has to be more a balance of top-down and bottom-up strategies in the city of Los Angeles, and they can learn from Detroit in that way, because right now there's, a, there's many bottom-up strategies about new zoning in, in Detroit, because the people and the planning departments are, are in the same feel the same way. They're like kindred spirits. They understand, we need to rethink this. This can't work this way. And right now in Detroit, the zoning is not dissimilar. You have industrial areas, you have residential areas, and it's isolating people. So right now what they're trying to do is allowing for opportunities for having a street which has housing, but also a library and a market. And that's something that is very easy to do in Detroit, given its scale. There are 680,000 people in Detroit, which is... Interestingly enough, the same size of just South Los Angeles. 
So you can imagine with the size of Detroit, there's greater flexibility and looseness about how they can redefine their zoning. That's something LA could learn from. There has to be more of a balance and a, and a flexibility in programs. This has been fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. Here is Betty Furness one last time with the Westinghouse pitch. It's compelling. It makes you wonder what we can do with the advancements we have some 70 years later. Yes, a new concept in living with the feel of the future is here today in this Westinghouse Total Electric Home. And the wonder of it is, Total Electric Living is not expensive. What's more, Total Electric Homes can be built to fit every taste in styling, any climate, and most important, to suit any price range. What a fun look at past design and how it affects both today and tomorrow. Thank you to all of the creatives who added to this conversation. Anthony Poon, Stephen F. Jones, Stephen Ehrlich, Dan Brun, Ben Feldman, and Lorcan O'Herlihy. Thank you, Thermosol, Article, York Wall Coverings, Franz Wigner, and Moya Living for your partnership and support. You are remarkable partners and amazing allies to the trade. And thank you for listening. Remember why you do what you do and that the business of design is about making better the lives we serve, right? Until next week, be well and take today first. We are living in a time of incredible growth, both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design, and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful, incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors, to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community, so you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living, their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. 